than that. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out. And special thanks to the uh, board of the Ignatovi Society for having me on the board, um, and also for uh, inviting me to come speak here about such an interesting topic. Uh, so I guess I should explain the title uh, a bit, Love and Happiness, which is, uh, I'm, I'm a big Al Green fan, and so when I heard about this, I immediately <laughs> thought of Al Green's song, uh, Love and Happiness, when suffering and bewilderment are kind of inevitable, inescapable parts of the experiences of, of, of love and happiness. And the subtitle, anti, one of Ibn Arabi's anti-systematic. Anyone who's read Ibn Arabi knows that he doesn't approach, he never approaches an issue from a single point of view. He always approaches an issue from at least two dozen different perspectives and points of view. So I'm just going to try to trace through one of uh, one thread I saw running through a couple of, of different writings. And anti-systematic, what I mean by anti-systematic, Ibn Arabi is, has been often considered to be a very difficult uh, thinker, difficult person to read, because he's been accused of being not systematic. Is it this discussion here, this discussion there? He just doesn't seem to be systematic. I argue that it's not that he's not systematic, it's that he's anti-systematic. What he's trying to do is actually break down uh, the limited systems that we have, that we've created for dealing with issues of love, happiness, suffering, and bewilderment, and break down these systems. So I'm looking, I'm trying to trace through one of the ways in which he uh, deploys this kind of anti-systematic method uh, to treat uh, you know, suffering with disease, you treat it the human condition, and you think of condition as like a medical condition, and our particular state of existence is a particular condition. So the epigram for this talk could come from Ibn al-Farid. This has a beautiful poem, Oh my neighbors, my bewilderment is between me, fate standing behind me, kind of driving me in passion before me, pulling me forward. Or from Al Green's song, Love and Happiness, something that can make you do wrong, make you do right. Okay. So for Ibn Arabi, as for so many Sufis and others in the Islamic tradition, it all starts with love. Everything starts with love. There's a famous Hadith Qudsi saying, uh, in which God speaks to the mouth of the Prophet, says, I was a hidden treasure and I loved, I loved to be known. So, so I created the cosmos, the creatures, that they might know me. So the beginning of creation, of existence, of everything, is love, comes from a kind of divine love. Now this uh, interesting kind of metaphorically or mythically, this love implies a kind of, uh, mythically speaking, a kind of divine loneliness, a kind of pain, uh, a desire, a desire to, to, to be known. And so the, the Ibn Arabi explains in the beginning of his Fusus al-Hikam, the bezels of, or ringstones of, of wisdom, that uh, God created the creation as a kind of mirror in which to contemplate himself. Because the knowledge you have of yourself in yourself is different from the knowledge you have of yourself via another. So just like your reflection in the mirror is different from I look at my hand, it looks one thing, but the, the way in which I experience myself in the mirror is, is a different thing. Um, but it, it all starts with this, with this love. And this, uh, in, in the mirror, in God's reflection in the mirror of, of creation, human beings occupy a special position. They're like the eye in the reflection or rather like the pupil in the eye. And Ibn Arabi has this great pun, the word for man or humankind in uh, Arabic is insan, which is the same as the word for pupil. So human beings, insan, are the insan in the kind of reflected um, image. So the, the, you can think of it this way. When you're looking at yourself in your reflection, the reflection is also looking back at you. But not all of your reflection is looking back at you. It's only the eye or really the pupil that's looking back at you. And in a certain sense, the whole image, the whole mirror image is contained in the pupil. 
So I don't know if you've ever done this. If you get really, really close to a mirror and look at it, you can actually see in your eye the reflection of the whole image. So in the same way, human beings are said to contain the whole of the, the a microcosm, the whole of the cosmos, all of God's divine names and qualities and attributes uh, within them. Another way to think about this that I like a lot is a dreamer within a dream. So you go to sleep, you have a dream, or God dreams the world. There has to be a dreamer inside the dream, otherwise there's no dream. So I go to sleep, I dream I'm a fairy princess or something like that. And I experience the dream through the eyes and the, the ears and the senses of the fairy princess. If, there were, if I weren't in the dream as a fairy princess, there'd be no dream. And because the whole dream is kind of a projection of my consciousness, in a certain sense, the whole dream is contained in the fairy princess. In the dream, everything, the, the unicorns, the rainbows, the whatever, all of that is, is within the... Uh, so that's the role of the insan, human beings within the cosmos. So they have a special relationship, um, which Ibn Arbi in the Futuhat says, uh, describes in terms of love and vision and witnessing. So he says, when God uh, provides someone with a love for him that is like his love uh, for that person, he bestows upon him witnessing. So it's like the dreamer witnesses the dream through the dream character. Um, God bestows witnessing upon this, this person and gives him bliss through witnessing him, bliss, happiness, in the forms of the things. Hence, God's lovers in the cosmos correspond to the pupil of the eye in the eye. Although the human being has many parts, nothing witnesses and sees save only his two eyes. The eye is like the lovers in the cosmos. The lovers are the ones through which God sees and witnesses and who witness things as God. So God bestows witnessing upon his lovers because he knows their love for him. This knowledge is a knowledge of tasting, of direct experience, not of conceptual uh, abstract understanding. So his activity towards his lovers is the same as his activity towards himself. That is, it's nothing but witnessing in the state of the one being, uh, of state of the being consciousness that is beloved to the beloved. Or in another passage in, in Fusus, he has this great poem. He said, the lover longs for the sight of me, but stronger is my longing, God's longing for him. The souls are in passion, but the decree, kind of creative decree, uh, hinders. I moan my complaint, and he moans his. And he comments on this verse, saying, now as he made clear, he breathed into him, uh, that is Adam, or human beings, of a spirit. Let it be said that he longs for none other than himself. Than himself. So God looks at himself in the mirror, dreams in the dream. Uh, the dream character loves God, God loves, and there's this kind of reciprocal relationship. So it's like your mirror image is loving you, and you love your mirror image. Okay, so getting a bit more philosophical here, um, when Ibn Arabi, like a lot of other Sufis before him, say that love can't be defined. Love can't be defined. And love is something so subtle, that, and things can only be defined by something that's more subtle than it, so love, love can't be defined. But he takes on in place with earlier philosophical conceptions of love. So Ibn Sina, famous Islamic philosopher, uh, defined love as a desire for perfection. So if not to be a desire for the greatest perfection is the first cause, the origin of all being, or being itself. If not to be takes this and kind of flips it as he does with so many things. So he says part of the perfection of the real, one of the names of God, or of pure being consciousness, wujud, is its inclusion of imperfection. If the perfect didn't include imperfection, it wouldn't be perfect. It'd be limited somehow. And so the love of the divine love, or the divine's attachment to its perfection, um, is actually attachment to non-existence. So Ibn Sina defines love as attachment to pure existence or perfection. But Narabi says, oh, for the perfect being, its completion, its perfection comes from non-existence. 
Or another way in which he kind of describes it is love is wujud, being consciousness in motion. Um, and where can pure consciousness, pure being go other than towards its opposite or its seeming opposite, which is non-existence. So Bernadabi argues that love always attaches itself to non-existence. So whenever you love something, you don't actually love that thing. You love uh, a non-existent thing. You, you want, if you want something, it means you don't have it. So he, said, he says, well, you might object. What about if I love, uh, I don't know, I love my wife, I love my child, I'm happy being with my wife, I'm happy being with, with my child. He said, no, what you actually love is the continuance of your intimacy with them. And that continuance is always in the future and it's always non-existent. So you always love, always attaches itself to non-existence. And there's some interesting consequence of this. So he says, the object to which desire attaches is non-existence. You already know that knowledge of God is desired by the servant, and you know that no created thing can gain knowledge of God as he knows himself, although creatures have the desire to achieve that. As long as the servant stands in the station of wanting knowledge of God, he's inseparable from desire's property. That is attachment to the non-existent thing. You never get full knowledge of God. You always want it. Your love is always attached to this non-existent thing. So he says, knowledge of God cannot exist. And because it cannot exist, the property of desire is more complete in, someone, in the servant of God, someone who wants this, than someone who perceives the object of his desire. Um, so he says, desire itself remains qualified by existence. Only, so desire only exists as long as the object of desire is non-existent. Because once you have it, you no longer, you no longer want it. It's no longer desire. What you want then is the continuance of, of that thing. So he says, it follows that desire will never disappear from us because its object can never be achieved. So love, desire is kind of infinite on, on, on both sides. It's, it always goes on. And then the interesting consequence of this, he says, well, it's impossible for anyone to love God. God is pure existence, being consciousness, and it can't be non-existent in any way from one point of view. So nobody can ever love God because the object to which love attaches so... Um, Thus, no love attaches to God from any created thing. Which you're like, it's from a Sufi. Sufi's always talking about love of God and this and that. Why is it? And he's like, no, that's impossible. He said, the, the real can't be sought for the sake of himself. On the contrary, he can only be sought for the sake of benefit. So the profit of seeking is to gain the object of seeking. But you can't gain the real. You can't gain, it's like you can't gain your own consciousness or like gain your own hand or something like that. So you can't seek it. It can't be gained by anyone. Thus, he cannot be sought by anyone in the cosmos. You can't seek God. And so he says, God cannot be attained through seeking. The knowers seek their own felicity, their own happiness, not God. So in, in one sense, from this point of view, God can't be loved. God can't be non-existent. God can't be a sought object. God can't even be an object of any kind. But in typical Ibn Arabi fashion, that's not the whole story. He said, well, in a, from another point of view, uh, only God is loved. In fact, only God is the, the real lover, beloved, and love in every relationship of love. So kind of like a dream. If I dream, I don't know, Harry Met Sally or some romantic comedy that I'm dreaming, all of the characters in there and their relationships between each other and their love and everything that goes on is, is just me sleeping in my bed. Uh, so from one point of view, no one can seek God, no one can love God. But from another point of view, only God loves, only God is loved. So he explains this in uh, Fas Harun, uh, explaining this verse of the, of the Quran. Have you seen who has taken his desire, Hawa, uh, uh, for his God? Which is usually interpreted in a negative sense, but Ibn Arabi gives it this kind of metaphysical explanation. So the greatest and most exalted locus of self-disclosure, a place in which God manifests himself, 
wherein he is worshipped is that of desire or love. Remember that he has said, have you seen who's taken, the one who has taken his desire for his God? It's the greatest object of worship, since nothing is worshipped except through it, and it is only worshipped by itself. So whoever worships whatever, they worship it through love, through desire, and they only worship it uh, because of desire. So he has this great poem, the truth of desire is that desire is the cause of desire. If not for desire in the heart, desire would not be worshipped. And he goes on to explain um, if... Uh, Whoever worships whatever form people worship, you're worshiping money, if you're worshiping a golden calf, if you're worshiping God, if you're worshiping well, whatever, you're, whatever you're worshiping, you do this because of desire. Any, in fact, everything we do, we do because we want to do it somehow. Even if we kind of don't want to do it, like doing push-ups or something, there's another desire that forces us uh, to do this. So everyone worships desire. Desire is the most universally thing that's worshiped. And it says, this causes bewilderment. Um, out of because every worshiper only worships his own desire and only seeks to worship his own desire, whether it corresponds with coincides with the prescribed command or not. So even though the things that people are worshiping seem to be very different, cars, fame, money, knowledge, whatever, they're actually all of these things are actually being worshipped through, and the actual thing that's being worshipped is desire or love in all of them. So it says, the perfect knower is he who sees the object of worship, whatever that thing may be, as a locus of self-disclosure, a place of manifestation of the real wherein to worship him through love. And he has this other longer uh, segment where he goes through um, that all human beings, everyone in the cosmos are lovers because of God, whatever the beloved may be. For the, crea the created things are just pedestals for the manifestation, the self-disclosure of the real. They're loving, and God is the loving. That's why Case loved Layla, Majnun and Layla, the famous stories, and he lists a bunch of other famous lovers from Arabic literature. He said, these, all of these beloveds are just places of disclosure of the divine, manifestation of God. He said, because all of these women in these famous Arabic love tales were pedestals to which the real disclosed himself to them. So he said, the beloved's a pedestal, even if the lover is ignorant of the names of what he loves. So even if you don't know uh, who it is that you're loving, it's, it's, it's God. He says, it's the same for our love for God. He, he, we love him in his places of self-disclosure and within a specific name, but be it Layla, Lubna, or whatever. But we don't recognize that this object is identical with the real. So here we love the name, but we don't know that's identical with the real. Um, he said, yeah, so then uh, after you die, um, or among, those are, among us are those who know God in this world, and among us are those who do not know him until they die while loving some specific thing. Then they will come to understand when the covering is lifted that they had only loved God, but that they had been veiled by the name of the particular created thing that they loved. Now, pulling this all together, um, oh, I think I have one more thing, yeah. So he says then that the, the subtlest thing or the kind of form of divine love, the subtlest thing you can experience in love is that you, you find an excessive passion, a longing, an agitated yearning, a wasting away, an inability to sleep or take pleasure in food, all the while you do not know who it is or how it is that you love, your beloved does not become specified for you. So when you've kind of ascended to these more subtle uh, levels of love, you're not loving a particular object, you have this love, but you're bewildered because you don't know who you love, why you love, where this love is coming from. There's just lots of love. Um, I don't know if any of you experienced that. Um, so I said, so uh, tying, this, tying these different threads together, uh, Ibn Arabi argues that love implies, implies desire and lack, and therefore suffering. If you want something, you can't get it. Anyone who's been in love, you know, suffering is an intimate part of that. 
And the reality of love is bewildering. The subtlest thing of love, you don't know who's loving who, for why, what reason. Um, and the goal of love, as he says, is, is happiness. Okay, so moving on to happiness. Ibn Arabi briefly defines happiness as attaining desires. You want something, you get it, you're happy. Pretty simple. And he also sometimes describes that as nearness, nearness to God. And he says, but we're only really happy in the, kind of perpetually happy in the garden, in paradise. He said, in this world, we have to, we only get all of our desires fulfilled in, in the garden. Um, in this world, we have to give up some desires to attain others. Right? So I want to eat a deep dish pizza pie, but I also want to look good on Instagram. I've got to pick, I've got to pick one or the other. Um, I, can't, I can't have both. Unlike in the garden, you can, you know, you can do whatever you want. Um, so he, uh, he then explains this. He said, since you have, um, in the relation to happiness, this is kind of going back to how you can't seek God. He says, you have no escape from returning to him. You should know that you are him from the first step, which is at the first breath, God. So don't weary yourself by seeking ascent to him, for that is nothing but you're emerging from your desire such that you do not witness him. For he is with you wherever you are, whether you recognize it or not. So your eyes will fall on none but him. However, it remains for you to recognize him. Were you to distinguish and recognize him, you would not seek ascent to him, for you've not lost him. He said, when, those who are seeking, uh, when you see those who are seeking him, you'll see that they're really seeking their felicity, their happiness in their path. Their felicity is the repulsion of pains from them, nothing else, whoever they may be. So the one who's completely ignorant of this is the one who seeks what is already there. So no one is more ignorant than he who seeks God. In Yoruba, we have a phrase like, the thing that I want to find is Sokoto, which is a town way far away. I found in my Shokoto, in my pants. So no one's more silly than the person who goes looking for what's in their pants or their glasses on their face, which I've done many times. Um, so God says, he is with you wheresoever you are, and wheresoever you turn, there's the face of God. So if you have faith in this, you realize, recognize that no one seeks God. People only seek their own felicity, their own happiness, so they'll be safe from what they detest. And uh, he explains, this is probably the hadith that Qudsi that Ibn Arabi talks about the most, uh, how you seek this nearness, or how you repel this, uh, this, uh, the things that hurt you or that you detest. Those who seek nearness to me, seek nearness through nothing uh, that I love more than the performance of what I've made incumbent, obligatory on them. My servant never ceases to seek nearness to me through supererogatory works. Till I love him, then when I love him, I'm his hearing which he hears, his sight to which he sees, his hand to which he grasps, his foot to which he walks. And if he requests my protection, my refuge from the things he doesn't like, I will grant it to him. But Ibn Arabi, as Ibn Arabi is found, fond of pointing out, it's not I become his hearing or his seeing, it's like I am already his hearing and his seeing. It's just kind of a shift of perspective. Um, so elsewhere, he kind of describes Sa'ada as felicity, human flourishing, the fulfillment of our purpose, actualizing our potential perfection, of witnessing and knowing God in this way, knowing God by God. Uh, and at one point he even writes, all felicity lies in knowledge of God. So there's no happiness really outside of that. Um, and he connects this to some discussions about mercy and wrath. So the experience of God's mercy is pleasurable, felicitous, everybody likes that. The experience of God's wrath or even our own wrath is unpleasant. But he says, my mercy, he quotes uh, Hadith Qudsi in which God says, my mercy is prior to uh, my wrath, meaning mercy for Ibn Arabi is substantial and wrath is just an accident. In fact, wrath is uh, seen as just an intense uh, form of mercy that drives people to more intense mercy, and not seen as, 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 as different, uh, different things. Oops, sorry. 
Uh, and he says that anything uh, mercy remembers, and mercy, interestingly, rahmah, you could translate it as love. Uh, Ibn Arabi and other uh, linguistic scholars have defined rahmah as the kind of feeling that a mother has for a child, which if that's not love, I don't know what is. Um, so it says, anything mercy or love remembers is happy, and there is nothing that is not remembered by mercy, for mercy's remembrance of things is its very existentiation of them. In Ibn Arabi's cosmology, it's mercy that brings everything, the whole world, all of us, into existence. Um, so we all, at a certain sense, are happy uh, because mercy has remembered us by bringing us into existence. Uh, and then he also argues because mercy is prior to wrath. The final end of everything is mercy, love, and felicity. But even though this is the case, love and desire don't cease. Even in the garden, um, there's still love and desire for, uh, for, for God, for perfection. Um, and in, in this everyday life, we're all too familiar with everyday sufferings, aches and pains, family drama, etc. So how do we deal with this, this suffering that, that comes about? So wh what, is, what is suffering? If it not to be uh, pain, pain. Pain is something that's so direct and immediate to us that you don't need to define it. Like sugar, sweet, pain hurts. It's, uh, but he also describes it in kind of more psychological or metaphysical terms as wanting something to be that is not and wanting something not to be that is. And another, it's also associated in his writings with distance or the conception or uh, misrecognition of distance from God, distance from what you want. So you have distance from what you want, you're in pain, you're in suffering. Uh, so then... Um, what, what are the, where, does, where does pain come from? So he uh, explains in this, uh, one of the really coolest discussions of pain and suffering I've ever read is in his Fas Ayyub, his description of Job, and um, which he describes the kind of cosmological origins of this as inclination, male, which could also be translated like tilt or even a kind of love. Um, uh, and he said this creates a disequilibrium between existence and non-existence. So he says, when you're healthy, you have a kind of equilibrium of everything. You're healthy, you're, you're, healthy, you're satisfied, there's an equilibrium of everything. He said, but there's no equilibrium in creation. It's not possible to have equilibrium in creation because there's no equilibrium between existence and non-existence. So the world is constantly coming into existence because of this tilt, because of this imbalance. Um, so if something's heavier than another, it's tilted and everything rolls down and everything will keep rolling down as long as there's that as long as there's that uh, tilt. So this is like Wittgenstein's question, like why is there something rather than nothing? Hypnotic says existence is weightier than non-existence because of this equilibrium between the two of them. Uh, so because of this, uh, because existence is always bringing things into existence from non-existence, uh, no, this world and us and everything in this world is never in equilibrium, it's always changing. And this existence therefore implies separation, multiplicity, Opposition, suffering, change, disequilibrium. And this, this is where suffering comes from. So the question is, okay, so we have this suffering. It's, it's an integral part of just life in this level of existence. How do we deal with it? Uh, so I actually found a pretty good summary of Ibn Arabi's, one of Ibn Arabi's perspectives on this. There was this uh, interview Stephen Colbert had with Anderson Cooper. I don't know if you guys saw it about death. It's like one of the most profound moments in like, contemporary pop culture that I've seen uh, recently. Um, and so he quoted Tolkien, he said, what punishments of God are not also gifts? And he said, he said, look, existence, this is in Colbert's own words, he said, existence is a gift, and there's no existence without suffering. 
and speaking about the, there's a tragic plane crash in which his brothers and his father died, he said, I came to love the thing I most wish had not happened. And I didn't learn this, I realized it. And this for me was just like, it's like Colbert, like you just, it's a perfect commentary on the Fasus right there. It's, it's <laughs> way to go. Um, so yeah, I, I, this is a kind of perfect summary of uh, a lot of what Ibn Arabi has to say um, uh, about suffering. So he didn't like what happened, obviously. He doesn't wish, he's like, oh, yeah, my brothers were getting on my nerves. I'm glad they went down on that plane or something like that. No, no, but he came to love it and accept it as coming from, from God, as coming from reality. Uh, but this wasn't something that he learned. It wasn't something that he thought through. That wasn't something that conceptualized. It was something that he realized uh, existentially. So uh, how does this suffering work? So Ibn Arabi kind of goes into more detailed explanations of this. So like, like love, suffering makes the soul move. If you're in pain, you can't stay still. You have to, you have to do something uh, to move. So divine wrath, Ibn Arabi describes, the thing that makes you uh, suffer, the fires, uh, is uh, actually a form of mercy that drives you towards, like I said before, more, more intense mercy. And he uses the example in this chapter on Dawood on the sword and chainmail. They seem to be opposite, but they're made from the same substance. Um, so it drives the soul towards more intense mercy. Suffering teaches, matures, and perfects us. Uh, and Ibn Arabi also emphasizes that you're not alone in your suffering. One of the biggest things that makes suffering very intense is the feeling of being alone, being isolated, being separated. And Ibn Arabi drives this point home again and again and again that God suffers with, or rather as, us. So he quotes his verses, those who, verse of the Quran, those who hurt God and his messenger, and the Hadith Qudsi, I was sick and you didn't visit me, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. Say so that God is actually suffering, not only with us, but as us. Um, yeah, and, uh, oh, sorry. So God is suffering with, so we're, we're not alone. God is actually, I mean, in, intimately suffering uh, as us, as, as close as you can possibly um, imagine it. And so he describes this in, in Fas Ayub, the chapter on Job, he describes the story of, 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 of Job um, and Job's complaint to God. And Job complains to God and he says, Satan has touched me and uh, touched me with, uh, okay. has touched me and afflicted me with uh, fever and pains. And uh, Ibn Arabi and the commentators interpret this as Satan. The Arabic word shaitan comes from the same root to separate or distance. So he says, what Job means by this is the property of distancing, or shaitan, has distanced me from seeing realities, perceiving things as they truly are. And so the God commands Job to stamp his foot, and this place of water will spring up, and they said, this will cool, your, cool you and cool your fever. And Ibn Arabi explains that water is the symbol of all life and consciousness. The Quran says that everything is created from, from water, all life comes from uh, water. And so to stamp your foot is to dig within, to go within the foot, uh, has to do with the below, the invisible, the inward, uh, the hands and up kind of has to do with the, uh, the transcendent versus the imminent. So to stamp your foot and bring forth water is to go within and find the source of, of all life, all, all consciousness. Um, and that will cool then the fires of separation because you'll realize there is no you know, separation. Um, so I mean, it kind of, you guys might be familiar with this Hindu tradition, Atma Vicharya, self-inquiry, go, go in to find the, the, actual, the actual self. Um, so you see, who is, who is really suffering? Is there really suffering going on? Um, and he brings out an interesting point. He says, some people say that you shouldn't pray. To, patience is uh, just accepting whatever happens and not complaining and not praying and not trying to change things. Ibn Ali says, this is, totally this is totally wrong. 
He said, it's only the ignorance of an individual who doesn't call upon God to bring the painful thing to an end, while it's God who has visited the suffering upon his soul. Indeed, in the sight of a man of realization, it befits such a one to be humble and ask God to bring an end to it for him. In the sight of the Noah, a man of unveiling, this brings an end to it for the divine. So you actually, God's hurting as you, and so when you ask God to relieve you of your suffering, you're actually relieving God of his suffering. And so, yeah, he says, the occasions or proximate causes to end something are many. So I've got a fever, I can take Tylenol, I can take aspirin, whatever, all these different things. I can take a cold ice bath. But the occasion or the ultimate cause of God is, is reality, is unique in identity. And he says, some patience is not complaining, but that's not right. Patience is, is not complaining to other than God. It's contentment with the decree, contentment with uh, what happens to you, even if you don't like what's been decreed. So I didn't get that much sleep two nights ago of a three-year-old son. I'm not happy about that, but I'm content that that's from, that's from God. So it's, it's a matter of recognition and kind of perspective shift. Uh, and he says that the real, the recognizers, the realizers, the people who kind of see things as they are, they say, oh, when they experience hunger, they say, oh, God made me hungry that I might weep. And weeping and crying out to him, I actually relieve God of his own suffering as me. He says, he's only visited suffering on me in order for me to ask him to be relieved of it. So this doesn't distract from me being patient with it. And he says, God has many faces, the occasions, the Tylenol, the this, that, the proximate causes of relief are uh, also faces of God. Uh, but patience, real patience, is to appeal to the face of selfhood, the wajahuya, the, the, uh, the, yeah, the imminent self or the ultimate uh, self. And one calls on this face for relief of suffering and not the other faces, which are called occasions or causes. This doesn't veil him from the fact that all occasions or causes are identical with him in a certain respect. So this doesn't mean Ibn Arabi says you should just you know, sit and do, I don't know, self-inquiry or something like that if you're in pain. Like, no, you can take Tylenol, but recognize and call on the, the ultimate cause for relief of the suffering. And in doing so, not only relieve yourself, but relieve him of the suffering as you. Okay, so the, um, the response to suffering is, is patience and prayer. So the prophetic model of suffering is Job and the prophet uh, Muhammad. They were both patient, they, but they complained to God of their afflictions, and sometimes even to other people, and they asked for them to be lifted. So patience, in this sense, is not passive endurance, but rather active engagement and embracing of the suffering. It's not a kind of stoic or pseudo-stoic disregard, but compassionate embrace of suffering, uh, that of ours and others, um, which uh, leading to, or from one perspective, coming from, the bewildering recognition of the relativity of the distinction between God, us, and others in reality. And the Quran kind of uh, says this very nicely. It says, we'll indeed test you with something of fear and hunger, loss of wealth and souls and fruits, but give glad tidings to the patients who are defined as those who in affliction befalls them say, verily we are from God or we are gods. It's lilahi, which is like, it's very intimate, very close. And to him we are returning. Not we will return one day, but we're returning all the time. So there's, when, patient, when affliction strikes you, the response is to recognize that uh, God is suffering with you as you, you are gods, um, and that you're returning to God, and to return to God through uh, this kind of recognition of the reality of the situation. Okay, so this is a bit bewildering. So now I talk to bewilderment, uh, one of my, I think one of the central and most important, it's not really a concept, but ideas in, in Ibn Arabi. Uh, so bewilderment uh, has its precedent in a famous hadith um, 
my Lord, increase me in bewilderment of you. It's a prayer that Prophet prayed to God. My Lord, increase me in bewilderment of you. Uh, which is, uh, the Arabic is almost completely parable with a verse in the Quran which the Prophet is instructed to say, my Lord, increase me in knowledge. So Ibn Arabi and Lowe's of other Sufis say, see, this is bewilderment is actually the same thing as knowledge, or really the reality of knowledge is bewilderment. Um, Rumi, whose I think either birthday or death day is this weekend, I know they're having birthday, birthday is this weekend, they're having a big celebration down in Richmond. Um, Rumi has a great verse, he says, sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment, for cleverness is what conjecture and bewilderment is victory. So Ibn Arabi then goes on about bewilderment. He says, now guidance is that man should be guided to bewilderment. And in Arabic, guidance and bewilderment are like opposites. So this is very paradoxical. And know that the affair is bewilderment, what it really is, and that bewilderment is unrest in motion, and that motion is life without stillness and so without death, and is existence without non-existence. So I'll do that again. So bewilderment is uh, unrest in motion, motion is life without stillness, and so death and so without death, and existence without non-existence. And in his chapter on Noah uh, in the Fusus, which deals extensively with bewilderment, he describes people as being drowned in the sea, which is the knowledge of God, and that's bewilderment. So he has a lot of interesting connections between uh, bewilderment and water, yeah, interesting metaphorically, being drowned in the sea of bewilderment, uh, all this motion, life, life in the Quran being connected to water. And I, th I think it's, uh, I don't know if any of you guys have seen the Bruce Lee speech, Be Like Water, My Friend. The water, if you pour it into a cup, it takes on the form of the cup. If you put it into a jug, it takes on the form of the jug. It can crash, it can flow, it can this, like. This is very, Ibn, bewilderment for Ibn Arabi is, is like this. It's the transcendence of all uh, restrictions and uh, fixed limitations. So the water, um, uh, so if, if you want to kind of transcend limitations, if I want to transcend the limit, visible limitations, I have to become invisible. But how do I become invisible? How do I make an invisibility cloak? I have to become capable of taking on any, each and every possible color at every moment. So if I had an invisibility cloak right now, it doesn't, no matter where I move, no matter where I am, that cloak would take on the colors, the forms of whatever's behind me. So for, and this is bewildering, you can't, like, if you, you can't say what color the invisibility cloak is. You can't say what an invisibility cloak looks like. It's, it's, it's bewildering. Ibn Arabi sometimes uses the example of a mirror. He says, no one's ever seen a mirror. No one's ever seen the surface of a mirror. You just see the stuff reflected in it. I mean, it's a, if it's a perfectly polished, clear mirror. Um, you just, it just perfectly reflects whatever comes back to it. And he said, this is bewilderment. This is the transcendence of all restrictions, of all uh, colorings, of all, of all limitations. Um, and this is uh, the work of the heart, not the intellect. The intellect binds and fixes and restricts. The heart uh, can, through polishing, can open up and can become this mirror, can become like water, can become capable of taking on any form, which is the only way you can really come to encounter and know God. So bewilderment for Ibn Arabi and even other thinkers in the Islamic tradition is the encounter of knowledge with that which transcends it. So the original root, Hayra in Arabic, comes from being dazzled by light that's too bright. You look at the sun, you can't, you can't see it, you're, 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 you're bewildered. And that's true of the light of the sun, what of the light of the real God, all, uh, you know, all, all, ex all existence. So because the real can't be defined, bounded, represented, fixed, or exhausted, um, the only way to encounter it in its essence and in all of its manifestations is through the loosing of all these restrictions, is through, by embracing bewilderment. 
Um, he, in another path, he compares the circular path of the bewildered people, the people who kind of just circle around, circumambulate around the divine, from the people who are seeking God. They're like, okay, I'm here now. I'm at this stage of spiritual realization, and I got to go here. He said, those people have a to and a from that they're going to. He said, and they'll never get there. That's a long path. He said, but the bewildered one who just who circle around God, and at each moment they see a kind of different perspective, a different angle at God. It's bewildering. He said, that's the real. Uh, form of knowledge. And he has a lot of circular diagrams uh, in his writings about this. Uh, so he, like Rumi, he has a story of a, comparing a polished mirror versus a painting. Uh, so Rumi has a famous story about the Greek and Chinese painters. Uh, it's supposed to do a room. The Chinese painters paint these beautiful dragons and everything. And the Greek painters just polish. Just polish, polish, polish the walls. And so when the curtains were moved, the king looks at them. And the Chinese painting is really beautiful, but then he looks at the Greek uh, side of the room and it's just uh, like a pure mirror and so the Chinese painting is reflected there and it's even more beautiful and anything else that comes in the room appears in there too so they win. So if Nadavi says this is the Sufis, this is the, the real approach, the polishing, the bewilderment that can take on any form as opposed to a restricted kind of conceptual construction of reality of the self of, of God. Um, so this, uh, this becoming perfectly receptive to the perpetual changes of the infinite, the erasure of all limits and restrictions, like Bruce Lee being like water, this is uh, how to know God. Knowing God is how we be happy, is how we deal with suffering, the recognition of our true condition, and so in a sense it kind of all comes together. Um, in the end, he emphasized only God knows God, and this is also bewildering, uh, but somehow, interestingly, he does it through us. Um, and then so he, he concludes, he says, and thus there is nothing but bewilderment, shatterings one, one's vision, although the one who knows what we are saying shall not be bewildered. Uh, bewilderment is the kind of recognition and realization of our own nothingness and everythingness and the transcendence of our limitations. Uh, it's the utmost extent of knowledge of God, the utmost extent of happiness, the utmost extent of love, and even, interestingly, the utmost extent of sadness. I'll explain that here and conclude. So there is a kind of sadness and suffering that's the opposite of happiness. I want something, I can't get it. Right? Um, but there's also a sadness that, in a certain sense, is identical with happiness. And in fact, leads to the highest form of happiness. And that's love, the longing or nostalgia for our original nature, for our original home, of nearness to and knowledge of God, which is, uh, according to Ignatoby, bewilderment, this kind of infinitely uh, flexible state the transcendence of all of our limited fixed ideas, systems, opinions, and beliefs about reality, the self, and God. There's a great Persian poem that I tried to translate into rhyme in English that says, glory be to my sadness for thee, for it is sadness eternally. For this sadness I wouldn't exchange a thousand joys despite its pain. Yeah, it's from, and this, is, uh, this sadness I, I, is, is, is love. So that's with that, I'll conclude. I look forward to questions and discussions later in the workshop. Thank you.